This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in. Today's guest is Jeffrey Funk, a blacksmith from Big Fork, Montana, who's been crafting public sculpture and architectural metalwork for over 30 years. I do really have a great appreciation for ignorance because it's so much fun to to dig through it, you know, to kind of part part the reeds in the river and find out what's next. Jeffrey is the director of the New Agrarian School, an organization that teaches blacksmithing and other traditional rural crafts. Jeffrey, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. I, I love this sort of programming as part of our our local radio station that makes it so we can be friends with people all over the state. I love it. Well, thank you for being here. So tell us, where did you grow up? And what did your parents do? I grew up, well, to the point that I did grow in teenagehood in Delaware. Okay. My father was an architect. My mother was a homemaker and worked in administrative work for the state government. Sure. And I was in Delaware until age 17 and I just went west from there. Yeah, what was the draw pulling you west? Well, the mountains. I mean, sure. they have a gravitational force, yeah. for sure. And what was the the reason for landing in Montana? Well, initially, at age 18, I came out to visit and ended up moving to Basin, Montana, where a dear friend of mine had a job in Boulder okay. as part of work with Antioch College. Hmm. which had a what they called a co-op job program. Sure. And she was she was there. I came to visit. I just fell in love in more ways than one. And um, that's what got the Montana dirt on my feet. Okay. And at what stage of the game did blacksmithing ar- uh, arise as a, as a career objective? Well, I don't know that I ever actually had a career objective. Right. I think I'm, I'm I think I'm working on one now. Right. I'm not sure that I have one either, so let's be let's be honest here. Yeah, this, we're talking about the early 70s. Right. And I uh, I had a pretty good measure of wanderlust. I also loved working with my hands. I was mm. really fortunate in high school to have a, a job which incorporated design, uh, welding, fiberglass work, sculpture, architectural models and mostly the the building of natural history museum exhibits. Okay. And I did that from when I was 14 till I was 17. I left school uh, and Delaware a year early. I, mm-hmm. I was I was kind of chomping at the bit. Formal education didn't didn't hold my attention very well. Okay. And w- but what were you interested in? I was interested in everything. Okay. I was interested in making things. Right. I don't know whether how I would have articulated it at the time, but I was pretty signed up for the for the back to the land sort of thing and, you know, uh-huh. being being self-reliant. It was a hippie going west. But I had I had no training in forge work and for those who aren't really don't know what that is, that's using iron with applying a lot of heat and deforming it as a plastic medium. Okay. It's very different than welding and it's very different than casting. So you heat the material, you strike it with hammers and you change its shape. And that's really what it is. How you apply that, what you use it for, you know, is there's a zillion things. Okay. So it's an ancient, ancient craft that in the early 70s was in America undergoing the kind of first breaths of a renaissance. There was really no intact tradition. Uh, there was memories. There was old people that talked about it. 
there wasn't much really going on. But there was a number of people throughout the country, in particular in the southeast, who decided that this was a craft worth worth investing in. And so a lot of people, myself included, were were just exploring it. Uh, from a very basic standpoint without instruction. Let's talk a little bit about that history. So I, I assume the rise of industrialization sort of displaced a lot of blacksmiths, I would imagine. Absolutely. I mean, they became irrelevant. Yeah. And historically, some some copy on your website that stood out is this notion that historically blacksmiths were feared and esteemed. And talk about that sort of um, lore around the craft. Well, that lore depends on where you are culturally. You okay. know, um, uh, there's a lot written about those those perspectives in Africa, and of course, Africa is not a, a unity. I mean, there's is a lot of diversity right. within the African and the ancient African metalworking system. But it's a practical alchemy yeah. to work yeah. to work with metal, and especially when you're making tools and you can make what was a relatively soft metal into a very hard metal by these processes which were not technically understood until really only about 150 years ago. And yet they were practiced for millennia. Um, and so it's a form of magic in a it's, way. It's a, it's a form or of understood magic. as a form of magic. And so magic is both exciting and, and fear-inspiring. Yeah. And different cultures just had different ways of esteeming the smiths. Sure. In some parts of Africa, the blacksmiths were... were responsible for male circumcisions. Right. They performed certain things with herbalists. And, and I, I'm no expert on these things. And I would assume like a big part of it too is making weapons. So it, it confers some power as well. Weapons uh, and, and a, lot of, a lot of ceremonial stuff. Yeah. Before, before the large-scale industrial production of iron and steel, iron was a fairly precious material. Mm -hmm. And so people were very measured as how they would use it. it. You know, the whole plow wouldn't be made of iron. There would just be a share on a wooden mullboard because sure. there wasn't that much material. Of course, that's all different now because we have this, you know, enormous global machine that makes, you know, un unfathomable quantities of material. But iron as a as a element that and as a metal doesn't exist on the surface of the earth naturally. But iron has a great affinity for oxygen. And so it's everywhere. It's a very dominant element on the surface of the earth. It's just that it's usually as an oxide. Back to your kind of entry point. You, it's the, you know, the late 70s. There's this kind of groundswell of interest in, in blacksmithing as a craft. You want to make things. It catches your attention. What happens next? I looked in the one ads of the one ads or the classified ads. In a, sure. It wasn't Craigslist. Yeah, it wasn't Craigslist. <laughs> it wasn't like the Mountain Trader in uh, Ohio. And I found an anvil, a couple of hammers, and a couple of pairs of tongs for 100 bucks, and I bought wow. them. Okay. Um, I still have them. And off you went. And, and yeah, and I went in the most completely blind and ignorant fashion, uh -huh. which tends to be um, one of my qualities, whether it's a positive one or a negative one. I, I do I do really have a great appreciation for ignorance because it's so much fun to to dig through it, you know, to kind of part part the reeds in the river and find out what's next. Sure. The other side of it is curiosity. Yeah. Right? No, insatiable. Okay. So at what point did it become like something that you could do to make things you were proud of and, and maybe derive some income from? You know, in my late teens I was doing this and that. I remember one of the first forging projects I did, I made a series of semi-tuned percussion 
gongs or bells okay. for a percussionist in Ohio. I, I dabbled with college-level study in you know, Antioch and the university, although not in Missoula. I was at the biological station in mm-hmm. Yellow Bay, which is what introduced me to the Flathead Valley. I loved that work. I was it was great, but it was all field work, and I just wasn't really I wasn't really wired for libraries and classrooms, and and so I just decided to stay there and see what I could whip up with my hundred dollar anvil and hammers, and I got a little place to work, and I don't know, just people called, and and I I would always design my projects so that there was some significant new thing to learn. I wouldn't do a project if there wasn't. And so one of the things I also read from your bio is a commitment to technical and aesthetic integrity. Talk about those two qualities. Like, do they correlate or do they conflict? Like, how, how do those things manifest in, in your work? I think that we, in the modern world, really like to compartmentalize things. And uh, a constant effort on my part, and of course, the part of, you know, lots of people, is to be integrative, to, to integrate things from around you, not not to isolate, because sure. it's pretty hard to see the truth in that. Historically, and especially in deeper in history, blacksmithing uh, was clearly an art form, mm-hmm. and it had it did have practical use, like in weapons, as you mentioned earlier, in agricultural tools. For instance, in the long history of blacksmithing in West Africa, as I know a little bit more about that, there was nothing they made that wasn't beautiful. There, in fact, the, I don't think that the idea of making something that wasn't beautiful even occurred to anyone. We've 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 diced and sliced and decided from you know these kind of quasi economic attitudes that function is separate from form or sure. separate separate from art. And um, I I resist that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I I more than resist it. I try to demonstrate that that's not only untrue; it's cruel. Right. And so I decided that those things. Aren't, aren't distinct. You know, craft is sort of an intermediary between what you might call the technological and the artistic. And I think it's a nice, it's a nice place to land. Those yeah. things, those things are pretty happy together there. So talk about that enterprise. What is New Agrarian School and what are you all up to? Well, uh, leading up to that is that I, I had uh, about a 45 year career yeah. uh, doing Forge work, primarily forge work, with the end result being sculpture, public sculpture in particular, architectural metalwork, and some agricultural work, although there's not a lot of call for that. Most of my income came from high-end architectural metalwork. Okay. And that work allowed me to learn an awful lot about how to move this material, how to think about it, what, what meant things to me and what didn't. But I became increasingly uncomfortable with my position in the economy of working for privileged, you know, generally quite wealthy people. Yeah, well, I would assume that's a very high-end market, people who are spending thousands of dollars on specifically, cat, you know, created, forged, whatever the word is, right. pieces for their home. Yeah, I mean, I made gates and railings right. and fireplace gear and chandeliers and you name it. Beautiful um, stuff. Oh, sure. No, I love making it, but I, I, like I said, I became increasingly uncomfortable with my position in, in relation to right. production, in relation to the use of materials, and in relation to the economy. I just sort of had a revelation. It's like, you know, you already, you've already used that setting to learn your craft. Now what are you going to do with it? And I decided that I didn't think that was the best application for it. I'm 67 now. I was probably 62 when I made the decision to start the school. I'd been toying with it. Over the 
last 30, 30 some years, almost 40 years, I've taught and demonstrated widely. The blacksmithing community since those days in the 70s has matured a lot and there's organizations, there's, there's craft schools back east, which I've taught at. And I, lo- I love doing it. Uh, it wasn't a money-making thing. I mean, I got paid, but I didn't, you know, it would have been, would have done better staying at home. Sure. Except I love doing it. And the schools that I taught at, in general, they weren't able to provide a workspace that I thought would be optimal mm. for this teaching. And I decided, well, I can do this better. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a great naive Genesis myth. Sure, um, ignorance and curiosity right, yeah. mixed gets, together. Gets me into all kinds of trouble. I love <laughs> crawling out of it. Four and a half years ago, I, I began a program modeled loosely after the schools back east, mostly in the Appalachian area like Penland School, John C. Campbell. There's, there's a few back there. Great places that offer blacksmithing in conjunction with other crafts. Penland in particular uh, was born and still significantly offers coursework in rural crafts, although it's gotten much more tied into the capital A art world, which is great, but it's it's a little bit different, and I'm kind of moving the other direction. My inclinations are to simplify and go to a more practical, rural, hands-on, without losing the aesthetic centrality of making things. We'll be back to my conversation with Jeffrey Funk after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is Jeff Meese, media technician at the College of Business, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Jeffrey Funk a blacksmith from Big Fork and founder of the New Agrarian School. Outside of blacksmithing, what's also, in your view, encompassed in these rural crafts? Well, self-reliance, community, uh, an intimate relationship between our needs and the Earth's Earth's ability to provide them, Mm -hmm. the recycling of materials, and um, agriculture. The name for the school, which is aspirational, the New Agrarian School, directs one toward thinking that this is related to the land. Agrarian is not the same as agriculture, at least not today. It encompasses a much broader, uh, deeper, meaningful relationship with the land. Blacksmithing, the material of blacksmithing is steel and or iron, and those are those form the skeleton of industrial society. There's right. no question about it. Uh, they, they are the spear points of our destruction of the earth. It's not without constant reverberation of c- contradictions that I can even work with it. However, at the right scale, I think that it's important. You know, I don't think anyone's really anxious to go to the Stone Age. So making simple tools so that you can have a meaningful relationship to the earth from which you sustain your, you know, your, your sustenance yeah. is kind of the aim. You arrived at this disposition. I'm sure it manifests in your work, but also in the curriculum. The students who, are, who come to the New Agrarian School, who want to learn from you and your colleagues, do they... I'm sure there's a range of folks that come. Some share that disposition. Some probably learn about it as as they experience the workshops. Yeah, the school the school seems to attract a certain 
a, a certain inclination amongst people who would be interested in working with iron. It is not an industrial approach. And if you read anything on the website, that becomes pretty clear. Mm -hmm. Most people probably don't read that stuff. They just want to learn how to make a hammer sure. or how to make a hoe or how to make a, a, a chisel or an ax. That's okay. You know, I mean, that's okay. But the the attitude of any of any instructor um, seeps into the classroom or the, into the, the realm of the students, whether it's uh, overt or not. Mm -hmm. And the school takes place on a 10-acre parcel. It's a rural location, and the object is to have a, a more conscious integration with the land as things go on. It's part of my philosophy, really, if, if you can call it that, is that I, I don't want to borrow, I don't want to go into debt for sure. any of this. So yeah. this is all, I, I'm just building it as I can. So the students that come to you, are they looking to pursue careers in metalwork, or are they kind of looking to hone their skills as an artist? Are they looking for a recreational pursuit? What's kind of the mix of, of students? Well, kind of all of those things. Okay. The younger people, that is 35 and under, most of them have an interest in the possibility of pursuing it as a career. Okay. I also have mid-career people come and take more advanced classes. Sure. Um, I've, I've got a pretty good bag of tricks, and uh, I know that any shop I go into, I find something new. And, and so there, it's, it's a great place for a person who's in business themselves, like in Seattle or whatever, to get a different perspective, a different way of going about things, right. how, how to accomplish them, how to design things like that. And then there's older people, retired people who don't have any ambitions for a career, but they are interested in a craft or pursuing something they, they, they had always thought about, but as an accountant, they didn't have time for it or whatever they might have been. So the age span is from, well, you're supposed to be 18. We've let a few younger people all the way into the late 70s. So continuing on with this thread of trying to escape that discomfort you had with serving a very wealthy client base to trying to make high-quality metal work more accessible. How do we get to a stage where those sorts of products and things that you and folks that go to your school and other colleagues produce, how do we make those more accessible to more people and more affordable? Well, you know, you have to reconfigure the entire macro economy a big to question. do that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, not, there's not one step to get there. I'm more interested in teaching skills than in making objects that are accessible. So okay. if I if you know how to make things, you can you can make your make own yourself. your own home economy and make it yourself and that's my primary interest. Okay. I love doing it and the source of that love is more came from the necessity of poverty. I mean, I I I never made money with a capital M doing this. I have a, been able to subsist. I haven't had a job since high school, you know, like where somebody wrote me a paycheck. Sure. So I just had to do everything myself. If a person visits the, the shop or the, the school facility, every hammer, every pair of tongs, everything was made there. So there are a couple threads here that I'd love to pull on in our remaining time. And that is this, I think some of the the values and decisions that you're expressing are, are shared with a lot of other folks. It oh, seems yeah. like there's a resurgence in local economies, artisanal products, whether that's a farmer's market or a CSA share or home brewing or home birthing or foraging or all of these behaviors that are intentionally kind of stepping out of the traditional 
capitalist model in many ways. Like it, it, it's easier for folks to go to Walmart to get what they need. Yeah, but, for sure. But to, to do the, the work to create or solve these problems on a local level is quite different pursuit. It feels like the rise of that has some connection of a sort to the rise of these technological platforms that allow us to connect to so many people, but connect in an electronic, really unpersonal, disembodied way. I might be spinning a yarn here, but like, do these ideas converge or diverge in any way for you? Certainly, social media um, has had an effect on blacksmithing as it has everything else, and especially among younger people. Instagram is super, super saturated with blacksmithing oh, type yeah. of stuff. Yeah. However, I would also say that people's interest in blacksmithing and related crafts, but maybe even blacksmithing in particular, uh, is partly a reaction uh, or, uh, from or a reaction to and a, a, a step away from the consumer economy. I think a lot of times people don't even necessarily know why they're drawn to it, but whatever they're looking for, their phone is not giving them. I think they're, that's what I'm getting yeah, at. Like, what is what is the draw to these sorts well, of there's, things? Well, there's nothing more direct than a hammer blow. Blacksmithing, it, there's a, a few things that distinguish it from other crafts. I'm not going to, I'm not going to preach like how great it is compared to everything else. Sure. But it is true that the blacksmith makes the tools for the other craftsmen. Mm, yeah. The woodworker, the glass blower, not so much not so much the potter, uh, the farmer, uh, virtually everyone uses things made of metal. Sure. And so I've made you know I've made lots of tools including for potters. I make like raku tongs, tongs for handling hot pots. I make tools for all kinds of crafts. And so it's this sort of it's almost paternal uh, in in the in the way that it supports the other crafts. It's sort of akin to what academics, I'm sure academic mathematicians think of their craft in, <laughs> right. in a similar way. Like all, all the all other the, sciences right. are derivative of, of math. Right. I'm not going to say they're derivative. Sure. But they certainly have a, a significant dependence. Yeah. This, this maybe unexpressed discomfort with the virtual world, which is increasingly being pushed on us, as being the real world. Mm, um, yeah, metaverse and such. Right, all that. This is absolutely diametrically the opposite. Yeah. In the same way that the word agrarian is exactly the opposite of agriculture as that word has come to be meaning industrial agriculture. Right, right. So it, it is fundamentally anti-industrial. And this is this kind of scary part is that when you start to learn skills in metalwork, if your mind is mechanical and if you have industrial ambitions, it helps you in that. So it's something to always try to resist to, to make it more mechanical, more automatic like that. The birth of so many industrial machines were in the shops of blacksmiths who just happened to be ingenious and could figure things out. But at that point in, in history, knowing when to stop wasn't something that people thought about that much now. And now it's a really central theme for everyone, or it ought to be. How much is enough? Just because I can do this, should I? Well, blacksmithing kind of pulls it back into one place. Yeah. And it's, and it's per basically a person, a fire, a piece of material, and an anvil. And it requires vision, imagination, and vision, which are closely related. And it's, and it's a very physical craft. It's, 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 it's hard work. And you have to have a very direct 
uncompromising physical relationship with what you're doing, or you won't accomplish anything. So we're speaking at a university, on a university campus. University is sort of traditionally a, 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 a place where ideas are developed and exchanged and defended and whatever. Some of the ideas that you're expressing are certainly missing in aspects of our curriculum here. You mentioned before we started recording that, you know, hey, I had no formal education and whatnot, but how can we do a better job as educators incorporating some of the, the powerful ideas that, that you've expressed today? Well, there's certainly a, certainly a, a deep well of literature that that I found inspiring and, mm-hmm. and you know, and would be welcome. I mean, it could be part of academia. It's not necessarily a major part. I'm personally really highly influenced by writers like Wendell Berry. Mm-hmm. He's someone who I respond to and, and you know, kind of ask questions in my own mind yes. toward. And, and, and a lot of it has to do with cultivating an attitude of appropriate restraint, technological restraint, ambition restraint, keeping things at a scale that are human, you know, and I personally think that, you know, some of this is probably genetic and that our capacity to process information, relationships, you name it, is small. And that's completely antithetical to the trajectory of today's world. We talked earlier about uh, my working for people who were quite wealthy, and they were also all over the country. Mm -hmm. If I had the ability to simply make things for people in a 50-mile radius, that would be great. It's just that the time is not ripe for that economically because there's several Walmarts in that same radius, which I'm not going to say are inherently bad, but they're they're inconsistent with the kind of ethical material basis of what we're aiming for at the school. Yeah. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you and your colleagues have put together a curriculum that opens up avenues into blacksmithing for for a multitude of people. You've embraced diversity and tried to be inclusive in, in your in your school. Talk a little bit about that and why it's important. Well, blacksmithing, especially, you know, 20, 30 years ago, is kind of a good old boys club. Mm-hmm. Um, and historically, that's also the case. I mean, you can find exceptions, and those exceptions prove the rule. But there are a number of people, and there's even an organization in the country, it's called the Society for Inclusive Blacksmiths, that advocates for uh, an active inclusion of women uh, and people that, that don't conform to the stereotypical good old boy. You know, could be gender nonconforming, could be racially non, you know, non-white. There's mm-hmm. all, all kinds of things. The object isn't to push some agenda. The object is to be really, really welcoming. Right. Um, just to be completely welcoming. And it appears that that's getting through because I'm getting inquiries from all kinds of people who you can tell they've been kind of hanging out in the shadows and maybe afraid to yeah. afraid to join this club. And I just say, hey, you know, you are so welcome here. Come as you and are. And pe- people yeah. need to hear that. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, Jeffrey, if folks want to learn more about New Agrarian School, you and your work, what you're all up to, where would you point them online? We've got a website. It's newagrarianschool.org. Um, just like it sounds, although agrarian is kind of like rural. It's it's hard to say and maybe hard to spell, but right. you'll figure it out. Yeah, I had to do like three takes of the intro <laughs> to, to get us to this point. Anyway, Jeffrey Funk, such a pleasure to learn more about you and your work. And um, yeah, keep at it. And if there's anything we can do to help, um, 
we're happy to. Thanks well, for being here. It's a it's a privilege, Justin. I appreciate what you're doing and look forward to hearing more of, of what you're doing and talking to you more. Thank you. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott, social media by AJ Williams, and Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.